Welcome to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Corey Zoll, the Executive Director of In the Heart of the Beast. Corey, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, I'm happy to, to, to be here. Um, I asked for some of your time to talk about, um, I think, a shining example of how to handle difficult times with a nonprofit organization. But before we get too much into all the specifics of the good work you're doing, can you just um, talk a little bit about the mission and history of In the Heart of the Beast and what you are and what sure. you do? Uh, In the Heart of the Beast Puppet and Mask Theater is really a cultural institution in South Minneapolis. It was Originally founded in 1973, where it was the Powderhorn Puppet Troupe. And um, most people know In the Heart of the Beast for our May Day celebration, which will be in its 45th year this year. And that is a, a it's this past year, 60,000 people attended May Day, and it's a, an event that has grown. Uh, tremendously over the decades. And for most people who have heard our name, maybe that's the only thing they've heard about us. We also produce new original work for the stage. We have year-round after-school and summer programming for youth. We have artist development programs. uh, And I'm I'm probably even missing something Mm -hmm. uh, here. There's a, um, a whole lot of work, other work that we do here as well. And the historic Avalon Theater that you're in is um, well identified within the neighborhood, but a lot of people that know you may not know um, as much about this because you do have these very big public events that are outside other spaces. You go to other communities. You bring your um, amazing puppetry, which is one of the things that I know and love from the organization, to lots of different folks. So um, can you talk a little bit about the history of owning the building and sure. the, the location here in the neighborhood? Yeah, we In the Heart of the Beast owns the Avalon Theater at uh, 15th and East Lake Street in South Minneapolis. The building was originally a 1920s uh, movie house. The uh, it, it, which got its first big renovation in the 30s. So the the uh, the Art Deco facade that you see on the outside of the building now wasn't even original to the building. There there's even a an older facade under that. It was a family movie house. It was known for things like kids matinees with yo-yo contests and uh, family activities like that. It operated that way into the 1960s, I think, and was abandoned for a while, and then became one of the most prominent porn theaters in the Twin mm. Cities for a time, part of the empire of Ferris Alexander, who owned a lot of adult entertainment venues. I'm native to this area. I did not know that part of the history. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, this this was uh, a part of, uh, yes, a part of the Ferris Alexander empire. When that when his empire came to a close, uh, the building was abandoned again. So now I think we're in the um, late 1970s, early 1980s. The building was empty for a time. In the Heart of the Beast had already been operating in several locations along Lake Street. In the Heart of the Beast has officed in the Robert's Shoes building that was lost earlier this year and the uh, Gustavus Adolphus Hall that came down a few years ago and in part of what's now the Mercado Central and it's it started out in the basement of Walker Church which is just a block from here so having operated in a number of spaces along East Lake Street uh, in the heart of the beast took this on um, 
as a building that needed an owner as much as as much as a theater that needed uh, as much as a, a performing arts company that needed a theater. Uh, so that was a very uh, loving restoration of the building uh, that was uh, led, as I understand, by Harvey Wingy and Susan Gust. And you can tell if you walk through the building some of the small personal touches that they put into, uh, like I said, a loving but low-budget restoration of the building. have been great. But So now In the Heart of the Beast has been in this building since the late 1980s, so almost 30 years. And there was another um, upgrade after that original one, but really we're still in a 1920s movie house. <laughs> it's uh, we uh, when we build our the May Day parade, um, we have people building things on the original raked floor of the auditorium, which is it's hard to work all day on a raked floor. Our lighting grid is 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 a uh, is perfectly serviceable, but it's homemade and it's hard to reach that. Uh, it takes extra work to reach that safely, uh, and the air quality isn't so great in the building, and the heating and cooling systems are not so great, and uh, <laughs> we don't have a sprinkler system. And there are other things, other just realities of being in a building mm-hmm. that are almost a hundred years old. But this has been um, uh, the Avalon has been in this time has been so many things to this this community uh, that it is certainly. A, a, a giant asset. Right. So the organization's been around for a long time. The building's been around for a long time. There's been some amazing contributions, including you started out by talking about the May Day Parade, which I think is one of the more famous things that the neighborhood would know about. Um, but what people don't often see or don't often talk a little bit about is the um, the ebbs and flows of organizational health over these kinds of things. When you're trying to maintain a building and an extremely large, very expensive and, and exciting community event, that um, sometimes when you're around those things and there's somebody walking around with a bucket and you throw 10 bucks and you're like, great, I, I helped for the event and I'm done now and I've done my thing for the neighborhood group. And I don't know that charities often do a great job of talking about all of the things that it takes to maintain large events like that, large buildings that need tender loving care, all those parts of it. And you've made a decision um, just in this last couple of days here to make a fairly public uh, announcement about some reductions in programming as a result of trying to do all those things without the levels of support that have been necessary for the last several years. And that's why I called you and said, I really would love to talk about how you've chosen to do this, because I think it's just a fantastic example of engaging community in the real work of what's going on, not just the exciting, flashy, here's the, the big event you love, but to make that happen is is bigger. And uh, I think there's so much to say about that. But first of all, could you just kind of summarize, what did you need to say to your supporting community? And, mm-hmm. and how was the decision made to send out an email Put it up on the website. Uh, kind of share that um, those those difficult moments with people when sometimes charities shy away from that. Well, we have been thinking about what should be the message we should put out to our community for about two months, and the message itself evolved over that time. But it was a very complicated message because it was it was. Um, for a year now, we've been talking about uh, how it would be best for the future of May Day if it, if it became a more decentralized event that wasn't solely produced by In the Heart of the Beast, for reasons that have nothing to do with finances. Mm. Uh, 
Uh, but it's hard. But I, I'm not going to pretend that finances don't have part of that. That's certainly one of the challenges. Similarly, uh, Sandy Spieler, who has been around leading the May Day process since year one, she decided almost a year ago that this in 2019 would be her her final year leading that process. So again, that didn't, and that really, honestly, didn't have anything to do with uh, with finances, aside from Sandy really deeply understanding that this is a transitional moment and that the best way to encourage new leadership to step forward is for her to take a step back. Um, uh, and so then th- later in this year, in November, when some income sources that we had been hoping for didn't come through and we realized so that therefore we wouldn't be able to do some projects that we had hoped to do and we would have to lay off some staff to get through our fiscal year. Thinking through how to share that information was really hard. Uh, so we thought, oh, well, we can make these, uh, trying to decide which order to make these announcements in, stirring that all around. And what we all at the table would keep getting back to would be, this is really complicated. Yeah. And that was the decision we made. That's Then we said, okay, no, actually, that's the message we need to put out, that this is really complicated situation. It's not about any one of these things. It's about many things coming together at the same time. And so we shifted to thinking of the best way to express the complications. So you didn't shy away from the difficult part of that message right away in the first communication, which is that this will be the last um, May Day Parade that In the Heart of the Beast does on its own in this way. That's not to say it needs to be the last parade, but it is not going to happen the way that it has happened before. And if something else doesn't change, it may not happen at all. And that was clearly and effectively communicated Mm -hmm. in a pretty short space without being alarmist or blaming or anything but and that's hard for people that have a primary identification with the, the, this is the big thing we know you for to say we're going to do this one again in 2019 but we need to tell you why it's not going to happen that way again in 2020 mm-hmm. now so that you understand that process and you're engaged but i got the email as a in the heart of the beast subscriber like a lot of other people did and the email message was relatively concise not alarmist not blaming but i think good but what I think was just a, a fantastic idea, linked back for substantially more information. If you really want to know the in-depth of why it's complicated that you talked about, you can go to their website and spend a fair amount of time reading the real information about why it's complicated. And I did, because I thought you did just such a fantastic job as a team of messaging everything that I might need to know as a supporter of your work to know where we got to this point. Not necessarily... We absolutely know for sure how we're getting past this point. Like, you know, here's the path forward um, for certainty. But really great um, layering of a fairly shorter message to make sure everybody got some knowledge of what's happening, but more information for those that cared for it. And um, I'm wondering how, in your couple-month process of deciding how to communicate, you decided to kind of provide that level of depth for people that want it and at the same time try to keep that initial message more accessible and shorter so that people didn't feel like they were being overwhelmed. Well, I, as a communicator myself, tend towards writing things that are far too long. (laughs) But I know that about myself and so that I've I've gotten to the habit of when I really want to uh, 
get into the details in written communication. I'll do that, but I need, but then I need to have a summary. So I think it started out as a, an announcement, and it grew and grew in length, and we realized, or this is now becoming something that is too long to to you to use as a press release, and so we came to the decision to uh, to make that a separate document and really um, not shy away from going into all of the detail in the longer piece and and have a shorter piece of communication that would be more concise. Was there concerns from anybody on the team, though, that if you're going to be a little bit short that uh, folks might misunderstand something or they may feel something if they didn't read the whole story? I mean, I think that's one of my challenges as a writer is, you know, if I ask people to read more somewhere else that they're going to draw conclusions before they get to that other place. And that's tough. That's a hard decision, when the, especially when the news is a little challenging, when it's not just like, we made our bazillion dollar goal and here's way more information about that. Probably I'm not going to click through to read all the rest of the information about all the good news. I get it. It's good news. Thank you very much for sharing it. And I'm moving on. But when it's um, the, when the message to you, to your point is it's more complicated, um, segmenting that is hard and feeling it. But I got to just think that as you were talking within your team, your board of directors, your staff, um, that there must have been some feeling of, you know, what's the right level for that first uh, communication and when do we start to separate the rest of the info? Sure. I at, at this point, I wish that my communications director, uh, Claire Curran, mm -hmm. was was here with us because uh, she gets uh, most of the credit for how nicely those communications pieces flowed in and out of each other and and worked well together. Uh, if you know, you asked the question, was there fear on the team that this was going to go? Uh, the wrong way certainly there was uh we i uh, a couple of days out from making that announcement i'm very pleased that almost all of the response has been have been responses of support mm -hmm. people seem to be seeing the bigger story uh the only people that i I'm aware of that really got it wrong was the editors who wrote the headlines. <laughs> I would I wouldn't say the journalists who wrote the the stories got it wrong, but headline writers have their own specific task, and those were the only places where I saw anybody saying that this is a decision to end May Day or that this is the last May Day. It's a it's a more nuanced thing than that, and I'm really pleased with how almost entirely that is the message people received. So I think a lot of other nonprofits are concerned about uh, sharing anything that might be perceived as this is going to be the last one. That um, some existing funders may go, well, that's over. I'm I'm done participating now. I just won't be there anymore because that's I'm already a done deal, and and I'm, I'll take my charity elsewhere. I don't believe that that's the real world, but I think that there's a fear in nonprofit organizations that if you try to communicate challenging news, that you're going to lose potential supporters. Um, so you went ahead and communicated the challenging news anyway. I, I assume somebody raised the red flag of, if we say this publicly, other funders may not come to the table. Is that correct? Yes, we, we certainly uh, talked about that a lot. And uh, as we, as I, I started saying earlier, the reason for In the Heart of the Beast to no longer produce Mayday on our own has to do with a lot of things beyond the financing part of it. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's true that in a typical year, this event costs us twenty or $30,000 more than, uh, than it brings in. And last year, that number was more like $50,000. And we can't keep doing that. 
Um, but also it is an event that is simply of a size that a, a single nonprofit like ours just doesn't have the infrastructure uh, to keep it up. If we look at other events that have been very popular and struggling to keep themselves afloat, like uh, Art of World, Art Shanty Project, right here in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. um, there were fireworks in Powderhorn Park for 120 years, and that was canceled because it's too hard to make an event that big safe and accessible. Um, and so we're certainly not the only event uh, that, even while it is more popular every year, uh, struggles to to keep that kind of infrastructure. So that's a real thing. Mm-hmm. Also, the culture of the work is such that a tremendous amount of work happens in an incredibly short period of time. Um, if you can think about... Mm, in the art, the art creation process, if you see a, a play that's produced on a stage, the, the process of, of developing that project uh, from, from writing the play to getting it on a stage is uh, two years would be a fast process. Mm-hmm. Three years would be a more realistic process. That's not what May Day is, but if we, this is a timeline that's condensed down to a first conversation with people in our lobby and the middle of February, about what's on people's mind. What do people want to, what are the things happening in the world right now that we would like to respond to um, with a parade? And then it's another six weeks before the artist team uh, has has boiled that down to a theme with a name. And then, so that's the end of March. And then it's only about four or five weeks later that we have this this giant event for 60,000 people. And if you're talking about it in terms of making art that immediately responds to uh, communicating with community, I don't think there's a bigger example of that happening that quickly anywhere in the country. Mm-hmm. But if you're, if you're talking about that in terms of uh, graphic design, marketing, mm-hmm. <laughs> having posters and T-shirts uh, and those sorts of things. That's a terrifyingly short period of time to bring an event like this together. Uh, the same goes for the actual production of the art. We've got a you know a parade that has 2,000 people that usually march in the parade and a giant uh, tree of life ceremony that happens in, in the park after the parade. Um, the work that goes into producing that is remarkable. And the artists are remarkable who work on this. Uh, it's staggering to anyone who watches the process. And it happens so quickly that it really relies on uh, people involved in the process who have who have been through it a few times. People who have sometimes decades of experience and, and they know what works and they know what doesn't work. They know how to get it done quickly. They know how things happen. And and that's been essential to carrying Mayday forward, but at the same time, it really effectively shuts out new ideas and new ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. And we've and we've figured out over time that that really disproportionately affects artists of color in the process. Artists of color, um, from my perspective, as the white executive director of this organization, uh, what I see is artists of color who are at first made to feel very welcome. In the process, 
uh, and really made to feel like their ideas will be welcomed. But then when we just get into the crush of things, the month of April comes, things are pushing so fast and very quickly, the whole team uh, shifts to, uh, maybe we can do that next year. Mm. We don't have time to do that right now. That's a great idea. Uh, stick around, but we're going to do it like this. We know how this works. We tried that a long time ago once and it didn't work. So, uh, and, uh, I don't think there's anybody in involved in the process who wouldn't agree with that description. Uh, and we have come to a realization that it's too, also, I don't, think anybody would disagree that that's something we need to fix. And we even have some really good ideas for how to fix it, but we've realized that it's so much work that we can't fix it. We can't produce May Day and fix it at the same time. Okay. So that's another reason to decentralize it. Right. So there's a lot of communication about the organizational challenge, but also the financial one. And, you know, that unfortunately wasn't a distributed financial challenge. I mean, the, the shortfalls just sort of fell onto um, in the heart of the beast. There weren't lots of other partners that were picking those up. So that does strain what you've been able to do in other spaces. So in part of your announcement, you said that this is a a reduction in staff and programming for the coming mm -hmm. year, not just May Day. I mean, May Day is going to happen this year, mm -hmm. but that as a result of all of those other choices and times, that the organization has to make some tough calls. And you are talking about that very publicly, and that's important. But it also means, um, are people going to um, react with fear, or are they going to react with, um, oh, we should be more part of this. And mm -hmm. um, we were just talking ahead of recording that uh, the mayor of Minneapolis and several other people have sort of stepped up and said, we can be part of a solution. So, all right, we had some fear about maybe how the communication would go, but the actual response so far has been pretty good. Can you talk a little bit about Mayor Fry's response or anything mm -hmm. else that you think kind of sheds light on why you would want to be as open and honest in a difficult situation as you've chosen to be? <laughs> um, okay, that that was there was a lot wrapped up. I would I would uh, <laughs> sure. I would summarize it by saying that this I if sixty thousand people came to Mayday this year, granted that's up twenty percent in like two years. You know, it's two years ago it was only, it was fifty thousand people who came. And even if a lot of those people come year after year, think about how many hundreds of thousands of people have attended to this event. And uh, it really, and and layer on top of that, the people who have experienced the organization in different ways and have had different relationships with the organization. Um, and even if you are an attendee of May Day, you can experience it in so many different ways. Some people just come to the parade. Some people only come to the festival. Some people sit on, put out their blankets on the on the hill 24 hours before the event even starts, uh, and spend the day um, on the on the hill where they can watch this, the uh, the Tree of Life ceremony. Uh, it, and so if you magnify that across. The rest of the organization and across 45 years, Mayday and In the Heart of the Beast simply mean very different things to different people. Uh, that was something that I grew to know deeply as I came in here as executive director was that uh, and the things that a wide range of people believe about Mayday, they feel them very deeply. So in a situation like this, there, it, I, it, it becomes very important to make sure that we're communicating in a way that can be communicated to people who have very different kinds of uh, interests here. And transparency, uh, 
uh, seemed like the the best way to go because um, again the, the the message was complicated, defining the audience is complicated, and the and forty five years of organizational culture make things complicated and sticky, and um, we came to a realization maybe mostly pushed by me but certainly supported by people around me that really the only way we can keep doing this if we can keep doing it if we can do it honestly mm-hmm. honest be honest with ourselves be honest with our neighbors be honest with our funders be honest with with the media uh, and take the leap of that yes people might get it the wrong way but if we can't get to a place where we have the same understanding of how this works and how it should work it's not worth doing mm-hmm. you made the decision to go out and do that the this is just a few days ago as we're recording this so this is very new but um according to the newspapers anyway or the stuff that i've read the initial response has been very very positive towards um the the public conversation on this not oh my gosh, in the heart of the beast is going away and that's, you know, the end of it and we should all run away and cry, but rather, oh, um, we should be thinking about this problem differently from a whole community perspective. And um, I threw so many things at you just a moment ago. Let mm-hmm. me just come back to one of them, which is the the mayor's response, mm-hmm. I think was a good emblematic kind of uh, um, vision to point to of, of saying, can you just kind of characterize how you understood the mayor's public response or anything else about sure. the work? Uh, so again, adding on to my previous response, because there are so many different communities to whom May Day and In the Heart of the Beast have different meanings, uh, people's reactions, people are having different reactions. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, and I am... I am actually staggered at how overwhelmingly positive the reactions are. There are there are people who are just only getting as far as that headline, and they're taking away from this that this might be the last May Day, and that is frightening and and sad for people. and And that's a fair reaction because we don't know what's going to happen next with May Day. So there's that thread. But I wouldn't even say that was a a major thread. More people are saying. Um, we're getting, we're being flooded with responses that are that say things like, "This is why I li- May Day is why I live in South Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. May Day is why I have a career as an artist. May Day is why I, you know, I I, I made a decision to live in this town because I happened to be visiting when May Day was happening and I couldn't get out of the neighborhood because of the traffic. So I got out <laughs> and looked what was happening. <laughs> Better rent a place. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was, the traffic was so bad. She just rented. Um, the, and we have had, resp- and so you asked about the mayor. Uh, the mayor called me yesterday, uh, as did the, the chair of the, the Minneapolis Parks and Recreation Board, Brad Bourne. Um, we heard, um, via social media from our new county commissioner, Angela Conley, uh, our city council member, uh, Alondra Cano. And the, and, and the message from those folks is acknowledging that this is, this is an important, important part of what is happening in, in South Minneapolis and in Minneapolis in general. And they want to be part of a solution. Uh, it's, um, governments don't have any more extra cash 
<laughs> swashing and swishing around than foundations or nonprofits do. So um, they're not uh, they're not sweeping in and offering to solve the financial problem with a giant check. Right. But they'll be here. Uh, and so, but I've already had a follow up conversation with the mayor's office about what things we can do. There are specific costs. Uh, related to May Day that we pay to the city that they may be able to help us out by um, providing uh, less expensively or, or at no cost. Similarly with the Parks and Rec Board because the, the we have the festival in Powderhorn Park. Uh, and those those folks have always been very supportive and again are looking for, want to be, want to find new ways. And I, and I do think those public partners in a future May Day that, that is less centered on in the heart of the beast uh, i do believe those public partners make sense to have uh, as partners that are holding up uh, this festival yeah so i think uh, acknowledging that uh, may day is a um, a signature event that's associated within the heart of the beast but certainly not the only thing as you point out it's an extremely busy amount of work to do the 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 event but it there's 360 some other days in the year that you're not doing may day that you are doing other things in the community that people come here you go out to other community events do you get a sense yet of how the message is uh, um, starting to resonate with other people that the institution that is in the heart of the beast um, has um, its own things to work out with community beyond just that one event? And, mm -hmm. you know, one of them is about the Avalon, is the, the building that you're in that have been caretaking for decades. Um, that that um, you know running a building for a smaller arts organization is challenging. Uh, you know sometimes people think of it as a revenue source, like oh you mm -hmm. can rent that space out and isn't that great? Um, but it's also managing a facility, which is not necessarily what most artists want to get into art for is to become facilities <laughs> managers. It's not like you can't do it. But I do want to ask you to talk a little bit about how owning and managing a building uh, and being a 365-day-a-year operation also comes into play with your mm -hmm. challenges and kind of how you move forward with those two things while other people maybe are kind of responding more about May Day. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we've figured out in the past year is that uh, where it costs us about $100,000 a year to own this building, and so that would include uh, all of the expenses from our mortgage payment to um, paying somebody to shovel the sidewalk, mm -hmm. paying the utilities. We tried to include everything in that number. Uh, and for that reason, uh, some people feel like, gosh, that's, that's far too expensive. We would be better off if we let this building go and we rented office space and maybe some studio space elsewhere. And mm -hmm. then when we need a big performance space, we can rent one. Well, what we figured out was that the, with current market rates, renting, well, if this theater is about 8,000 square feet, if we rented between two and 3,000 square feet of, uh, of office space with some studio space, uh, the cost would be, the, the middle of that price range would be about $100,000 a year. Mm -hmm. So we wouldn't save any money by not being in this building. Uh, but I know we know that performing arts organizations are struggling with the cost of performance space, whether they own it or rent it. Yeah. There are uh, plenty of arts organizations that have owned buildings and and um, fallen under the the weight of the the debt with those buildings. And part of that goes back to even more than a decade ago when it was very easy for an organization to borrow against the value of its building 
to pay operating expenses. That was a trap that some organizations fell into. Or um, the buildings become, if, if an organization is in a, in a rental position and buildings become more valuable for other uses, for mm-hmm. landlords, rents go up. Uh, it's been, this cost of space is, is, is up quite a bit. The one thing that seems contradictory to me, at least on the surface, is there are other theater venues that more specifically rely on rental income from mm-hmm. from other theater companies to pay. Those folks are reporting that they're not filling their weeks, which tells me, which especially after two years of losing arts venues uh, in this town, uh, including the Soap Factory mm-hmm. and the the Red Eye losing their space, Intermedia Arts losing their space, Patrick's Cabaret losing their space, mm-hmm. Bedlam Theater losing their space. I might be missing somebody else. <laughs> um, that the idea that uh, rental venues aren't full every week is 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 confusing. What it tells me is that even for those arts entities that would like to rent these spaces, the the the, the market rates are too high. There is, uh, it's, it's becoming incredibly uh, expensive, even for those arts organizations that don't have a permanent space that they own or rent. I think that's an important uh, learning to share with the whole community as this process goes on, that this is not a unique thing to the Avalon Theater or to In the Heart of the Beast, but rather um, if we look at the cost of accessibility for smaller arts organizations, because there are certainly in the Twin Cities and and many communities around um, very, very large institutions, multi-million dollar um, venues that are, you know, I'm sure they're just fine, uh, that this this is working. Um, but for the, the more moderate priced organization to say, um, you know, if you've got a, a, a more volunteer-based troop that, uh, you know, relies on ticket sales and doesn't have a load of donated revenue to make up the same, the cost of the venue itself can really be, well, we're going to do a weekend and not three or two because, you know, the cost of that space is just more than we really want to be able to bear and we crush our audience into two nights instead of six um, you know maybe we'll do a little bit better so seeing those more weekends available is an, an interesting indicator to bring more people to the conversation that you've started here I think about how do we preserve the venues that we do have and make them accessible so that those of us that want to see that particular performance aren't you know, if I'm out of town that weekend, I'm I've lost it. Right, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't get to go, and I'd love to be able to to know that there's more opportunity to engage. But it's a real problem, both from the producing organization as well as the kind of building owner organization. Um, do you start now with um, talking to other partners um, that that still do have spaces that mm-hmm. are in, about what are we doing to understand this problem better? Or what's the next step in acknowledging that that's an issue that's broader than just in the heart of the beast? Right. One of the things you brought up was squeezing your work into um, uh, one weekend instead of two. Really, what, what a lot of theater companies find is they're, they're, uh, their productions break even budget-wise on the third or fourth or fifth weekend uh, mm-hmm. because it really takes some t- uh, In the previous generation, a lot of theaters depended on the sale of season tickets uh, as, a, as a large part of their income. That has largely disappeared. People, people decide on Friday what they're going to go do on Friday, and they want to buy tickets on Friday. <laughs> and, and so it's, it's harder to plan ahead. And when that is the way that people 
buy their tickets, it sometimes takes two or three weeks for the hype to build. So, and so typically for a theater company that is doing a run of a show for uh, four weeks or five weeks, it, the attendance really starts to build that whole time. Uh, so there's an, that's another direct impact of the expense of, of, mm. of space. Usually like with any other kind of thing you're producing, as you as you produce more iterations of it, the unit price goes down, right? So, sure. so if you can keep audiences coming in over a long period of time, uh, you you're able to cover more of the initial investment of the of production. Uh, but when you have to when the when the uh, space costs get too high, it tips tips that balance uh, back in the other direction. Yes, we definitely see if there is going to be a future for this organization, and there we and, and we are not giving up on that yet. If there is a future for this organization, we know it will be dependent on sharing this building more. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that is something that is straight up rentals, or if that is sharing this space with two or three other performing arts organizations all year, or some other scenario we haven't thought of. Uh, we about a year ago, we got a, a beer and wine license. We we do some rentals here. It's pretty informal. We do rentals when people call us uh, and ask us if we're available. So call us and ask <laughs> us if we're available. Uh, we certainly have some uh, some space open this uh, this summer uh, during what are typically our, our slower months here, and um, that is and what you mentioned talking to partners and other organizations to seeing to see who might be interested in partnering on sharing space or renting space or something radical like merging as organizations. Those are exactly the kind of conversations we want to have in the coming months. And I think you hit on something there that's really important is if you're going to have a partnership long term with anybody, that transparency that you're showing to the community is that first step, that they're not going to feel like um, they've started a conversation and then they get in like, oh my gosh, these guys are failing. They're going to close the door tomorrow. I didn't know that. And now I've spent all this time in conversation. I think everybody understands where you are, that there is going to be some reduction in staff and programming for the coming year in order to kind of balance things back out. But that, that that's not the same thing as we've made a decision to shut the doors and we're going to go home. That's not what's being communicated very effectively here. So that level of transparency, I think, gives potential partners, both in the artistic world and in the funding world, an opportunity to step in and say, I, I get it. I know where we are. We know the value of what In the Heart of the Beast is. We know the value of what the Avalon is. Now we've got to figure out what's the solution while you're in this kind of restructured year of a little bit less staff, a little bit less programming, so that there's that opportunity to grow back. Um, so we're, we're running just about out of time. I do want to ask you to kind of talk a little bit about um, what maybe you hoped for originally when you started communicating very publicly mm-hmm. and where you think things may be going now next for In the Heart of the Beast. Mm-hmm. I, my own personal hope was that this conversation about May Day and In the Heart of the Beast would happen in the context of this larger conversation uh, about arts organizations in Minnesota. And, if, and at least... You know, it's only two days later, mm-hmm. but so far I, I feel like that is happening very successfully. Uh, I want people to feel like, I, want, I, I really encourage anybody to think about what 
nonprofits and especially what arts organizations are actually important to you that actually make a difference in your life and in your communities. And I sure, I hope that is in the heart of the beast. And I hope that you go to our website and donate today. But it, but I, but if it's not, that's okay. But whoever that is, maybe get in touch with them and see how they're doing. Uh, because this is a, this is a precarious situation for many arts organizations uh, in, in Minnesota. Well, we're going to have May Day. Yep. There are, are a very small number of responses have been from people worried that there wouldn't be a May Day this year. There will be a May Day. It will be, uh, like I said, for, for unrelated reasons, it will be Sandy Spieler's 45th and last year wow. leading this process. Uh, she's been doing this since she was 20. And uh, we're going to celebrate. This will be a May Day that celebrates all of that and is, and is what people want and, and and love about May Day. We will be doing our, our puppet lab program is in its eighth year. Ninth year? Eighth year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, well, those performances will be in March. We will have our puppet cabaret performances. Uh, we will be continuing our educational residencies that we have that we have planned. There was again very understandably some people who we have contracts with have been concerned. Oh, are you still going to be be able to come to our school this spring? Mm-hmm. That's all of that's fine. We're not the, the this is not a crisis where we are broke today. You know, paychecks are are being are, mm-hmm. are not bouncing. Bills are being paid on time. This is about looking out 6 months or a year and seeing that we, that this this way of doing things as we have known it uh, is coming to an end and and the best thing we can we feel we can do is talk about it. Yeah. That is a fantastic sum up of the whole conversation. The best thing we can do is talk about it. And I think that's just inspiring. So um, uh, one last question is uh, how can people learn more and stay engaged with your sure, work? Sure. Uh, uh, I would, as we have listed in the announcement, there are, are, there are three ways to jump in here. Uh, of course we want your money. <laughs> uh, this May Day is still projected to operate at a loss. Whether or not you care about the future of the organization, <laughs> and oh yeah, and the, and the organization could use the money to because the more cash we have in the bank at when May Day is over, the more options we have, will have available to us to rebuild our future. So money, sure. Your time, you know, May Day involves up to a thousand volunteers. Last year we had trouble filling all of our volunteer slots. So if you're somebody who does May Day every year, you know, spend just a chunk of your day. Not we don't need your whole day. Um, or in the days before or, or after the event, uh, sign up. Uh, that's not hard to find on our website. Uh, sign up for a volunteer slot. And we want your ideas uh, is the, the third thing. We've got, there's a place to leave concerns and questions on our website. I'm not going to be able to get back to them all immediately, but I promise to get back to everyone who leaves feedback there uh, eventually. Uh, we want to hear from people who are interested in uh, sharing the, you know, who have ideas about things that might work. And those ideas are, are already coming in. And we, we, ha- we already had some ideas coming from staff and elsewhere. So, but we want to, we want to hear from people about what they feel are the most important things in our work that we should carry forward. And also the ideas about what, what we can let go and what things might look like in the future. 
Outstanding. So that um, website is hobt.org, uh, so you don't have to type out the hole in the heart of the beast. It's a nice little short one. We'll have links in the show notes to that and direct links to the uh, communications so that people can kind of see some examples of if your organization is thinking, how do we talk about more difficult news and, and engage community? I would encourage everybody, read through every one of the different pages that, that offers information and engagement for community, because I think it's just great examples of how to do that. So those links will be in the show notes. And uh, Corey Zoll, Executive Director of In the Heart of the Beast, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.